I lived in New Hampshire for a while, and I'm Jewish. Um, being Jewish in New Hampshire was kind of difficult, you know? A lot of the kids started trouble. Some of the kids, anti-Semitic, used to throw pennies at me. But uh, I saved those pennies. And uh, now I have my own business. <laughs> Checking my BlackBerry and seeing, I got an alert for a credit card failure on the e-commerce site, and it was for twenty-two thousand dollars. I don't know. I think entrepreneurs sometimes, if they're told no, you can't, you kind of go out of your way to show yes, you can. It was probably three years in before I took a first vacation of like a week. So I think that's important to do. Too many people either want to find a market that there is no competitors in, which is really scary for lots of reasons. Or they want to go into a market where there are competitors, but they don't have a real edge. Right, well, yeah. If you don't mind, just telling us your name, telling us about your company and where you're located. Okay, absolutely. This is Jonathan Cogley. I founded a security software company. Our first product came out back in 2005. I'm based in Washington D.C. Originally from South Africa, and landed up in the U.S. back in 2000. I have a consulting background. My software company makes basically infrastructure software, so security software for helping companies manage their passwords across all different devices that they have. So it's pretty niche. It seems kind of off the wall and a strange thing to make software in, but it's actually a big problem. A lot of companies need this type of software, and we've been able to get over seventy five hundred customers around the world, and it's taken about twelve years to get there. And you said you came to the U.S. in two thousand. I did, yes. I was based in London at the time. I'd been grew up in South Africa and then moved to London. Spent a couple of years there. Right. How old were you when you moved over? Uh, twenty-four when I moved to the U.S. Was it by yourself or with family? It was actually my ex-wife. She's from the U.S. We met in London and got married and then came over. When you came over, were you already an entrepreneur? I'd been working as a consultant in the U.K. So when I was in London, I'd been what we would call in the U.S. a ten ninety-nine. It was very popular. It was kind of the late '90s. IT was booming. If you could do anything with HTML or any sort of programming language, you could get a consulting job. And so I'd been doing consulting for a couple of years, which meant I had to like, run my own LTD and do paperwork and charge VAT and all the basics of business. So I was a one-man entrepreneur. As a one-man entrepreneur, how were you able to grow the company today? When did you actually start your company? Did you start it right when you came over from South Africa? I closed down the LTD in the UK. And what's the LTD? It's a limited, like an LLC, a limited liability company. So I closed that down in the UK, and I incorporated in Delaware in 2000 when I came over. And I just did it kind of out of habit. As it turned out, I couldn't actually use my ink in the US. And the job I landed up getting in Pennsylvania as a consultant, they still wanted to be a W-2. So my first couple of years, I landed up in Pennsylvania, which is where my ex is from. And the first couple of years, I worked as a consultant programmer. But I still kept my incorporate, you know, the company around and did little things with the company while I was working on my consulting. And I think most people are familiar, but can you just explain the difference between W two and ten ninety nine? Yeah, absolutely. So W two is the typical employee in the U S. It's you're on payroll. You may or may not have benefits. You don't really participate in the company's profits or anything like that. You're a typical employee. Whereas a ten ninety nine, you're a consultant. Any customers you work for. They don't have to worry about any benefits or payroll taxes. They just pay your invoice, and it's up to you to file all your taxes and run yourself as as a business. You came over, and then you were W two, and you said you had your other independent company on the side. I did, and I, I didn't do a lot with, but I was learning in my consulting role. 
And it really wasn't a W-2 position. It was hourly. You know, every hour I worked, I got paid an amount per hour. And there were some benefits associated with it, but it was still kind of, if you didn't work, you, you didn't get paid. The usual stuff I've always done working as a consultant. Did you just get bored of it and decided you wanted to kind of make your go back to independent contracting or starting your own company? Um, well, the, the city, I was in Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania and the city, you know, a huge culture shock for me coming from London to Pittsburgh. That took some adjusting and, and the business world was the same. Yeah. Before you talk about the business world, talk to us about the culture shock because maybe a, a lot of us probably don't know, understand the differences. Sure. So London at the time, so London in the year 2000 was very cosmopolitan city. So you could, if you wanted Thai food, there was a Thai restaurant on almost every corner. There was espresso, coffee, you know, all kinds of things were just normal. It was the stuff that we take for granted today in 2018 in most major U.S. cities. London had that probably more than 20 years ago. And so I arrived in Pittsburgh and discovered that the food of choice was pizza and wings, however many different varieties you'd like of pizza and wings. But if you want Asian food or something, there was like one place in the whole city coffee was Dunkin' Donuts. It just wasn't the same. So it was a huge culture shock for me coming in. And almost every person I met in Pittsburgh was from Pittsburgh. It's pretty different. Even going to New York City or Washington, D.C. are radically different from a city like Pittsburgh. And how about the business shock? What I discovered as I was working there for a couple of years, I ended up working for the same customer on six-month contracts. So six-month consulting gigs, and it just kept getting extended and extended. And as I branched around and tried to increase my hourly rate and look for other opportunities, I discovered that the market's really, really small, and the people all sort of know each other. They can, I mean, this, I don't think this is really legal, but they can sort of limit what you can do. If you get another gig somewhere else and the guy knows who you're working for now, and they might be old buddies, they chit-chat and then they decide that they're, you're not going to get that gig. And so you're kind of limited by the community that you're in. And that really annoyed me. So I decided I had to get out of Pittsburgh. I had to find a bigger market just to expand my career and be able to do more in the consulting world. And can you talk about that a little bit more? I'm a little confused on how they're able to limit you. It's like the old buddy network. They just sort of know each other. If you're interviewing at a new job and they find out where you're working now, they might call the... Oh, tell me you're interviewing there. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, and then you're not going to get fired or anything. They're just going to... Suddenly that opportunity goes away. And you're like, well, what happened? You know, If you're good at what you do, you're almost limited because they hold on to you and they kind of limit your opportunities. I also... An interesting story, and this kind of feeds into the next part, is I did a software product while I worked for this main customer I worked for while I was there. And they had a need to solve an email problem. And I'd looked at the requirements and some of the specifics and so I approached them and said, hey, can I try to build this for you? You know, hey, this is what I do. I'm a software programmer. I really want to build a product or grow my side business or do something. I ended up building prototypes and doing it. And I don't think they could ever get over the idea that their consultant, and they didn't really think of me as a consultant. I was just, you know, some guy who had been working in their IT department for a few years at that point. I think they struggled with the idea that I could build something that could compete with the vendors that were making similar products and were, were coming in to pitch their products. And so I put a lot of time into this and I don't really get a fair shake at the bit on the project. And that really soured me to the whole thing as well. I was like, you know, I really do know how to build software products and I can make that happen. And of course, once I left Pittsburgh, that's what I landed up doing. What year did you leave Pittsburgh? I left the end of 2003. I got a consulting gig, as you can guess, I think it was a three-month project. So three-month contract in DC, working for a customer, starting up a new platform for them. But that gave me my billable per hour and, you know, got me started in a new city, new companies and opportunities I could pursue there. Is that typical that you just bid on contracts? Like, how do you get a job when you're going out of Pittsburgh? 
and when you're bidding on it? So I'd been very active while I was in Pittsburgh in the developer community. So I had done a lot of speaking. I was fairly well known in the area. I'd go to user groups, kind of developers get together in the evening at a community center or often like development councils will host programming get togethers and you would speak on some topic, you know, something you knew really well or share expertise. So I'd become fairly well known in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area as a developer who kind of knew their stuff and could share knowledge on different things. I leveraged that network. I was pretty well connected with Microsoft at the time. So I knew some of the, they call them evangelists. So there are these people that kind of push Microsoft technology around the country and they know this stuff really well. They support speakers. So I knew one of the evangelists and he told me about this opportunity. He said, hey, there's this thing in DC. Let me connect you with the guy and see. So that speaking and all those engagements definitely helped me build connections which allowed me to jump to the next step. How were you doing financially at this time? I'd always been doing pretty well as a consultant contractor. Because of the risk you take, you generally make more money than a W-2 employee. So I'd probably, typical programmer was probably making, you know, successful developer at the time, maybe like 80 to 100,000 a year. And I was probably doing maybe 25% more than that. I wasn't hurting. We had, at the time, we'd bought a, a house in Pittsburgh. So we had a house to sell. Man, I was pretty well off financially. What made you want to end that? It seems like most people be like happy and be content with that. Yeah, I think it's just the, you know, wanting to do more, pursuing the next thing. What was next? And, and I think looking back on it now, I think that getting snubbed on the software product kind of really hurt my feelings or something. I don't know. I think entrepreneurs sometimes, if they're told, no, you can't, you kind of go out of your way to show, yes, you can. I guess it was mainly the driver was that software product you're saying? It was that, and it was also the culture shock of being in Pennsylvania, wanting to go back to something bigger city, more opportunities, just a different lifestyle too, a more cosmopolitan lifestyle, more things that you can access and do. From there, you're going to Washington, D.C., still on a contract, right, at this point. And again, it's basically like you own your own company, right, when you're 1099? Absolutely. So you have an accountant, bookkeeper, you're paying to get your taxes done, you're keeping all your expenses, you're sending out invoices. You're tracking them down, making sure you get paid. As a contractor with the type of work I was doing, you typically only had a, a couple of customers because they were taking up most of your time. So you might have like one main customer and maybe like two ancillary. And up to this point before you had moved up to Washington, had you learned anything business-wise that might be helpful for our audience looking back? I think that I had from a software development point of view. So I was about, so by the time I moved to DC, I'd been a software developer for about eight years and I'd work consultant contractor roles the whole time, which meant that I'd seen lots of different companies, especially in the UK. I typically jumped around every three, six month contracts. So I'd seen different environments, different ways of doing things. I'd seen different platforms. So at this point I'd worked on Unix, I'd worked on Microsoft, I'd worked on the Java side, I'd worked .NET was still pretty new. So I'd seen lots of different platforms. I just had a lot of experience in a pretty short period of time. And then also a lot of soft skills too. Because as a consultant, there's a lot of challenges, right? There's books out there. There's some really good books on consulting and how to think about it. But you're usually the person that the employees don't want there because they're like, why do we need this guy to come in and help us? So you get given the worst work, you usually get given you know the worst equipment to use, the project that no one understands or no one really wants to do. I'll give you a funny story. I once had a project given to me and the manager walked over and dumped the manuals on my desk. And there was, you know, I don't know, 1500 pages worth of stuff on this platform. He had been to the training about four weeks before out on the West Coast, had a good old time and enjoyed it and, you know, had it learned all about this platform. But I think it was mostly just a vacation, came back and then handed the work off to me. 
And so I had to build an interface using this new platform I'd never seen before. And I had about three weeks to do it. And for me, that was fantastic. I loved it. I just, you know, dive into the manuals, figured out how the platform works, started getting some code working and had something basic up and running in a week or two. But that was fairly common, what would happen. It sort of give you the work that no one else really wanted to do, something that was difficult or, or too challenging. And probably most of our listeners aren't on the developer side. What do you mean by all this? Like when you're putting together an interface or a platform, can you just make it as simple as possible? That particular example, it was a, a system, I think it was around like service tickets. So it was like a ticket system and they needed to access it from like something else. So they wanted to put a new front end. So like a new, you know, shiny user interface on top of it and be able to access it from their own software. So I had to figure out like, how do you talk to this other piece of software and how do you ask it? Like, what does this agent have? Which open service requests do they have? How do we present them on a screen? How do we add comments to them? How do we close them out? And so I had to figure out their APIs. And so APIs, just the handshakes between the two systems. How does that work? How do we make it work on a different platform? And then get that all production ready to roll out and be used in the real world. Before we move on to again, going to Washington, I'm just looking at your background. How did you get into computer science? Because it looked like you studied microbiology back in college. <laughs> I did. Where did you go to school too? Because that seems kind of interesting. I went to school in South Africa. I was born and raised there. I lived in Johannesburg. I went to the, the biggest university in the country it is University of the Witwatersrand. By US standards, it's probably not that big. It was probably like 22 or 23,000 students at the time. I landed up doing life sciences. I thought it was something that would really interest me. In high school, I'd done computer science and done programming, but I thought it was kind of boring. I was like, you know, I don't know that that'll interest me for that long. I want to dig into like a, a bigger, deeper area. And at the time, biotechnology was coming up. It seemed like it would be this really cool new thing, you know, genetically modifying organisms and all this. I was like, wow, that sounds great. I'll do more of that. So I did my degree in life sciences and then moved to the UK with the plan to do my master's and carry on down that route. And just some financial challenges and not being able to pursue that master's right away led me to looking like, how do I make a buck? How do I actually get started anywhere here? And that's what pushed me back to programming. Because again, you know, late 90s, it was booming. I was like, well, I can figure this stuff out. I know how to do this. At the time, it was uh, Visual Basic 4 and Visual Basic 5. Their Microsoft development platform was the popular thing, at least at this one pharmaceutical company. And so I, I got a copy of it and played with it at night, figured out how to make it work, and then tried to get a job doing that and sort of pushed it from there. Where did you go to get your graduate degree? I did that remotely while I was in the UK. I did it through a, a university called the Open University. I did that while I was working. And that was mostly just me trying to legitimize being a programmer. I was like, well, I've got this degree, but it's not in what I'm doing. So why don't I get my master's in computing? And it helped. I got some good theory and some of the basics around databases and all that kind of stuff that I probably would have had to figure out on the fly otherwise. Yeah, because I saw Open University, I hadn't heard of it. So I didn't know where in the world you were for that. Let's go ahead and jump back to your move to Washington and take us from there, the exact time frame and kind of how you built up your company from there. In DC, it was early 2004. I was working on a consulting project, uh, getting this product out the door for a customer. It was, I can't talk too much about the specifics. It's a bit of a sensitive industry, but it needless to say, it was building a product where you couldn't make mistakes. The software had to be absolutely correct. And there were a lot of complexities to how the rules worked. And it landed up involving like millions of dollars in payouts. It was a challenging area of software to work in. You had to get it absolutely right. 
Can you just tell us the industry so we know what type of industry? It's kind of similar to insurance claims. Okay. If someone's making a claim, you got to make sure you get all the rules correct. And then ultimately how the dollars pay out. If it's a half a million dollar claim or something, it has to be paid out to the penny. Exactly right. If you get something wrong, you could introduce a $80,000 issue. And then that could roll over a thousand claims and big money, right? It was challenging. But anyway, what happened with this customer, they had a lot of tight deadlines in delivering their product out the door and they needed more and more help. They were looking at how do they bring on more programmers to solve this? And so I chatted to them about it and I was like, well, why don't I bring on people? And so what I did, I'd always wanted to grow my consulting company was I went out and I hired people as W2s to my company. And we worked on this project for this particular customer. And then I also picked up a couple other customers in the area because, again, DC is a big market. I was doing more of the speaking again. Now I could speak to a larger audience in these developer meetings and get my reputation more widely known in DC and then get more customers that way. And so I started building this little consultant team of people that were doing the same sort of work that I'd been doing for years, but now we were doing it for multiple different customers. Was that the first time you had to hire somebody? Yeah, that was the first employee other than me. So I hired the guy and he was great. Uh, he actually only lasted six months and then moved on to other things. But you know, I kept hiring other people and slowly had a team of about five or six engineers that were doing different projects for different customers. And I got my company revenue up to probably pretty close to a million dollars. Let's back up and just talk about what type of revenue you were doing before you hired that person. Well, I guess what was your projection of revenue before that? The business at this point is just a services business. Revenue was really easy for us. It was just billable per hour. So how much do you charge per hour for a person's time? That goes on an invoice and then you offset that with your costs. What does it cost to employ that person, pay their benefits, payroll taxes, everything else? So billable rates at the time were anywhere from about a hundred dollars, well, maybe a bit less, probably about 85 bucks an hour to maybe like 130, depending on the expertise of the person. Do basic math. You'd always work with a number of about roughly 2,000 hours per year. So if you can get someone billing at $100 an hour, you've got about $200,000 in revenue per person. Five people, you're doing about a million in revenue. And how quickly did you grow from one person to sound like you got five people if you did a million in rev? Yeah, probably about 18 months. Tell us about the differences and what you had to do versus being the independent contractor. Because if someone's listening and maybe they're thinking about trying to hire somebody, it's different than you just being an independent contractor the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. So the responsibility is huge, right? It was all fine and well while I was taking the risk as a contractor. Like if I didn't have work, then you know I didn't make any money. But now all of a sudden, if I didn't have work, now I couldn't pay these other people too. So the responsibility for me was significant. But I think having done this for like eight years already and always kind of balancing cash flow and stuff like that made me more comfortable with the risk. So it, it didn't phase me as much. I was comfortable with that part. Another aspect too was I'd always usually worked in teams. I was usually the, the guy on the team, you know, the, the outside guy coming in, helping the existing employees. And now I had to bring that mindset to my team of employees and be like, okay, we're going to go into this customer. There's a dev team, development team of 25 people. They're hiring two of us to come in and help them. And so I could just share the expertise I'd learned over the years as to how to do that effectively. I was less of a boss and more of like a coach with the people. And did you have a contract in hand when you said you hired these people as W-2 employees for your company? I did. I think I had probably, probably like six months worth of signed contract for that person with a 15-day notice period. So it can be canceled at any point which landed up happening a couple of years later. 
we're just looking at trying to minimize risk by you doing that. It seems kind of risky for you to just go sign these people as employees unless you knew, I guess, how much contract you had. Why don't you tell us what happened from there? You said at this point, this customer canceled the contract at some point? This particular customer did, and it brought the roof down, but it happened a couple of years later. It happened about five years after that. So we kept that one customer for many, many years. But anyway, the problem that I noticed with the business is kind of what I was alluding to with the hours. If you want to grow this business, the only way to do it is to hire more people. And you have to keep them all busy, and you're only going to grow at a very linear rate, right? Because it's just based on how many hours these people can work. I saw early on that it was just difficult to grow this business. So by the end of the first year of running the services business, I came back to the software product again, the thing that I tried when I lived in Pennsylvania. I was like, there's got to be something we can build. If we can get a product going, then we can sell it and we're no longer tied to hours. We can you know, sell a product for $1,000, whatever it is, sell it to a thousand customers and keep growing the business and not be tied to people in hours. I tried a couple of different products, didn't have much success. So as you go, you know, fail, fail fast. So tried things that didn't work. And then by the end of 2005, we created this product that's called Secret Server, which is this password management tool that ultimately is what Psychotic, the company is, is all about today. But we created this product in October of 2005. I think it took about four months to build it. And we built it in time, downtime from, from customers for consulting. So if I had one of my guys not needed on a project right away, I'd have him working on this product. So we built this product. We got the version 1.0 out. It was quite difficult at the time. So 2005, we wanted to be able to sell it online, which meant we wanted to be able to take credit card transactions. Well, there weren't companies like Stripe available. There wasn't someone that packaged the whole credit card stuff for you. So we had to build not only the product to manage the passwords, but we had to also build like an e-commerce site that could process credit cards and do that kind of stuff too. So we did all of this in a couple of months and we got our first version out in October of 2005 and not a whole lot happened. We had a couple of little sales here and there. We were maybe a typical sale price at the time was maybe like 200, 250 bucks for someone buying our product. But the interesting thing was people weren't buying the product in DC people were buying the product from all over the place. So I remember one of our first customers was a construction company in Australia. And they found our product online, thought it was interesting, probably tried it out and then bought it with a credit card. I never even spoke to them. They just did it. It specifically is just a password management product you're saying? Password management, but at the time, most of the password management tools were for individuals. It was like a little wallet, you know, like a software wallet. You would keep your passwords in as one person. And what we really wanted, this was a problem that we actually experienced as a consulting team, which is what gave us the idea, is we would often get given passwords by our consulting customers. And they'd be like, well, here's our VPN password. Here's the password for the source code repository. Here's you know, password for the, the software. And they would give us maybe four or five passwords. And we had a team of five people. We're like, well, how do we securely store these passwords and share them amongst the five of us so that we can do work for this customer? And there was no software at the time that was doing that. Everything would have been you know, five individual products for each one of us to use. And then we'd each have a copy of the same password. And then if the customer changed it, then we'd have five copies to, you know, you kind of see the problem. It just wasn't for a team. It wasn't for a group of people working with credentials to be able to manage those effectively. And so that's the product we built. We built a web-based tool for teams to access and share passwords and control, like, does Steve really need access to this password or only access to that one? Stuff like that. 
How did that company in Australia find you then? I think it was probably just a Google search. So we had a website up, you know, some feature pages talking about what the product did with screenshots. Uh, we had a little e-commerce engine where you could, you know, swipe your credit card online and pay for the product. We had a free trial from the beginning. So you could like try the product out for 30 days, get it installed. It wasn't, you know, cloud wasn't a thing then either. The product wasn't cloud-based. And honestly, I think if it was, I don't think people were ready to put their passwords in the cloud anyway. So this was a tool that you, our software, you downloaded from our website. You installed it locally on a server. It was for the IT people, right? That's, that's who we sell to. So the IT admins would install it on one of their servers and they put all the passwords in it and share it amongst their group, try it out for 30 days. And when they liked it, they would just purchase online with a credit card, get a license key and be good to go. How much were you selling it for? I think it was like $30 a user at the time. And people would typically buy like a 10 pack for maybe a discount of like $250. Yeah. Per month? No, that was it. Perpetual. It was a one-time deal. You bought that and and we offered support so you could get upgrades to new versions at about, they were weird pricing. I forget the pricing now, but it was loosely based on a percentage. It was probably like 20% maintenance, something like that. But we're talking really, really small dollar amounts. Tell us what you learned from, this was your first real company, it seems like, other than your product. You had the company before, but what you learned early on in doing this? At the time, we weren't even convinced that this was going to work, right? It was curious that a few people were buying it. I'd had products in the past that a couple of people had bought. I did um, you know, one consulting product that probably made about maybe $50,000 over maybe a couple of years, people buying it, one-off licenses and stuff. So to make a bit of money wasn't a clear sign that this was a success. It was still a, a kind of a novelty. Is this thing really going to work out at the time? And the consulting business was growing, right? So we're going from a million. We're well on our way to like 2 million a year in revenue. Is, does this really make sense to keep pursuing this? And so I started looking more carefully at the sales that were coming in. And I think one of our, well, looked carefully at the sales, tried to figure out, is this really taking off? Are more and more people coming to it? And how can I grow it? And I think I got some good advice and bad advice at the time. I was connected in with a couple other entrepreneurs in the DC area. So I would bounce ideas, you know, take them out to lunch, bounce ideas off them, try to get an understanding of what I could be doing better. One of the lessons I think I've learned in hindsight was if you think something's going to work, get some sales power behind it. Like hire that salesperson and, and push them, get them having those conversations, making phone calls, at least talking to prospective customers and seeing whether they're really interested in your product and, and see if you can get some more sales traction. And so finally in 2006, I, end of 2006, I did that. So it took me about 12 months looking at these sales trickling in before I put the bullet and I hired a dedicated developer just for the product. So this person wasn't going to be a consultant, you know, 40 hours a week, they were just going to work on making this product better. And then I also hired a person that was like a dual sales and marketing person. So again, 40 hours a week, this person would do nothing but sales and marketing for the product. And that was a huge turning point. Within a couple months, we started getting more traction. And probably the biggest aha moment was we had a company. I remember waking up in the morning, checking my email. I think before I even went into the office, I think it was a BlackBerry at the time, checking on my BlackBerry and seeing I got an alert for a credit card failure on the e-commerce site. And it was for $22,000. My goodness. So what do we do? So I called up the sales and marketing guy and he's like, yeah, I know I'm looking at it right now. So he looked at it, tried to figure out like, why did this credit card charge fail? Who was the customer? What were they, what were they trying to do? And he called them up and there was a company in Denmark 
I don't remember what they did, but anyway, he chatted to them and it was real. They were trying to process a real order for $22,000 and he got the deal. And that was just such a turning point. I'm like, okay, you know, throw the gas on the fire. This thing is crazy. We just got to push more and more stuff behind it. Was he just purchasing a ton of licenses? I don't know how you rack up the 22,000. Yeah, he was buying something like 3,000 user licenses. And we had, I think we tweaked the pricing. We were, you know, figuring out how to make it work. And we've changed the pricing in the company probably six times significantly in the last decade. We did several things pretty much always. I think a good lesson for entrepreneurs is it's okay to start small, but you're probably charging too little and you can keep bumping up that price and and really increase your revenue and your ability to do more stuff as a company by doing so. If he's buying that many licenses, is it per password? I don't know if you would know or remember how you were charging in because earlier you just said 30 bucks per user, right? I don't know what the math works out to to get $22,000 sale. I think he was licensing like the whole IT department of like a large multinational. So it was like 2,000 IT people were going to be using our product. That's what bumped up the price. And I think we'd introduced some add-on packages at that point. So you could buy like for $2,000, you could buy the capability to integrate with Active Directory or it was stuff like that at the time. What year was it when you actually, I guess that was your aha moment. What year were we in? Uh, this was probably like April or May of 2007. Well, along the story so far, it sounds like everything's kind of worked out, but you did mention that someone gave you some bad advice. What was the bad advice that you got at this point in time? I had lots of entrepreneurs tell me not to hire salespeople. They said, oh, just do the sales yourself. You know, why don't you make the calls? And you got to remember the situation. Like I was running, I was like the coach for the consulting team, right? So I was in like two or three customers every week with my guys, like helping them solve programming problems. I was often working like 50, even more, sometimes 70 hours billable on customer work. I didn't have time to call up prospects and chat to them about our software product. So it's just really bad advice. So the second that I hired someone that could just not have to worry about the consulting side of the business and just focus entirely on finding customers for the software product, that just changed the whole game. And so I've given that, I work now as a mentor with a lot of startups and that's common advice I give now. Like anytime you can hire a salesperson and you know get them out there and have that be their total focus, you just get a lot more insight on where your product is working or not or what you need to change and, and how to grow your business. And at this point in time, are you still married? Yeah. And you said you were working a lot of hours at that time. Up to that point, what point did you get divorced? Actually, I only got divorced about two and a half years ago. So pretty recent. I always try to see the balance of like personal life versus business life because I think sometimes we get wrapped up in growing the business so much that you forget other aspects of like your health or other relationships, if you will. But up to this point, everything, I guess, was still okay. I was definitely working too much. That's for sure. I mean, the first couple of years, I don't think I really took weekends. I think I pretty much worked the weekend. It was a couple of years in before I started taking weekends off, like no work at all on the weekend. It was probably three years in before I took a first vacation of like a week in a whole year. And it took me until probably not till about 2012 that I start taking like reasonable vacations, like a couple of weeks each year. Why was that? Is it because you didn't outsource enough or you just wanted to be involved or tell us why? One of the other big differences with the company is we, we never took any outside money. We never took any funding. So because we had the consulting practice, we could bootstrap the software products, but it meant working a lot because I was kind of the, the expert, you know, expert on both sides of the business. 
And I hired smart people and then they could build products and do things. But I never got a co-founder. I never split out equity. I never took funding to get stuff done faster. And so it meant a lot of that that sweat and tears had to be done by me. Well, did you ever feel like alone at this point in time? I did. My dad's always been a really good mentor to me. He ran his own business in South Africa for a number of years. He was a good person to talk to, especially like HR problems or taxes and stuff like that. He was always a good sounding board and he continues to be so today. I still go to him with questions and things. So that was a big help. And I struck up a good friendship with one particular entrepreneur in the DC area. Him and I used to do lunch on a regular basis and he would we'd sort of commiserate on our entrepreneurial issues. And what do you think about this one? And that helped a lot, but it is, it is lonely as a single founder. There's a lot of stuff you can't share with your staff, with your team. You have to hold that stuff. You have to be positive. You know, you're the leader of the group. If things are going poorly, you can't let that show. And, and I think I perhaps did that to a fault. In hindsight, I could have let my guard down a little bit more and been a bit more sincere. I think sometimes to my team, I came off as just incredibly stoic and doesn't always feel certain things, that kind of thing. What kind of things would you have to hold in? Because if, if someone's not a founder, maybe they don't understand. What happened a lot was we'd have prospective deals. So on the consulting side, we might be involved in some deal that was maybe going to pan out with a contract for $2 million over three years, but the odds of it succeeding were maybe only like 15%. It might take like five months for that to pan out and then we didn't get it. So you had to hold that pretty close because if you kept sharing that with your team and then most of them fail, they're going to be pretty pessimistic about life in general since everything's always bad news. So it was things like that. And then also cash flow too. And the lifeblood of a small company is cash flow. So we would have times where we'd have invoices out and we'd be making great money. We didn't have any money in the bank because you're waiting on three invoices to be paid. You've done payroll. You've had to do estimated taxes, which is, is really challenging. And then it actually got worse with the product company because then we had more customers. So instead of having a couple of consulting customers, we now started having hundreds to thousands of software product companies, but some of them would land up with bad debts. They'd never pay their invoice. We'd have to send them to collections. And you know we're holding the bag for cash flow and trying to make payroll each month. So there were some really tight situations there. And it probably is a good lead into what happened with the consulting. So come, I think it was 2011, business is growing really well on the product side. Consulting's doing pretty well maybe doing like half a million in product revenue. So still really slow beginnings, right? A couple of years to get to significant revenue there. Probably doing two and a half million or so in consulting revenue. And one of my biggest customers on the consulting side, they had some change in management and they gave us 15 days notice on about a $1.2 million contract. So... <laughs> 15 days notice, meaning that they're not going to fulfill. Just explain that a little bit more in detail. So we're working billable hours on a contract that's worth about $1.2 million a year. We've got about, I think it was at the time, maybe seven engineers working on their project. And they gave us 15 days notice saying that in 15 days time, we don't want any of your engineers doing any more work for us. So we'll pay you for your hours to date which will be two weeks more or less because we build, I think we build twice a month at that point. And that was it. We just would not have any more business. So that perspective, $1.2 million a year from that customer just went away. It was probably like 50 or 60% of our consulting revenue at the time. It was a massive blow. Tried to resolve it with them. Things turned a little nasty. Didn't really get anywhere, <laughs> right. which was a shame because we've been doing work for them for you know five or six years at that point. But anyway, I had to say, well, how do we weather this? Do I have to lay people off? How am I going to cover cash flow or whatever? And I decided to just double down on product. 
I took those engineers and I pushed them all straight onto our software product. And I said, okay, we're not going to make money. Did a few company announcements, you know, tried to bring everyone on board. We ended up not paying out bonuses. We delayed bonuses for, I think, two quarters. We did pay them. People did get their bonuses, but we just explained to them that for cash flow, we just couldn't do it now. We held those numbers and kind of weathered the storm. And we just pushed harder and harder and getting more software product revenue, pushing more effort into making the product better and pushing our sales and marketing folks harder. And we did it. We survived. We didn't lay anyone off. 2012 when this happened? That was 2011 and then moved into 2012 and really started growing the revenue. And I think it was, I forget the exact numbers now, but we're probably getting close to like one and a half million to two million in product revenue after that. Well, can you tell us about how that talk went with the people like scared or in doubt or what were your emotions going into that talk? I think my voice was probably wavering a little bit. It was a tough one. I still remember it. It was at our office on 23rd Street in D.C., we had this sort of retail space that had big glass windows. It was our third office. So it was about 3,000 square feet. We probably had about 22 employees at the time. And I remember getting everyone around in the common area. It was kind of one big open space office and standing in front of the whiteboard and kind of drawing through the numbers and explaining at a high level. Again, you don't share all your revenue and profits typically with your employees, but just giving them a high level picture of where we were at, what we just lost and what the plan was to recover. And getting everyone on board, obviously, they weren't going to get their bonuses, weren't going to be too happy about that. But then also reassuring people that no one was getting laid off, which I think was a big fear for many folks, especially the engineers, right? What do you do with seven engineers that you don't have work for anymore? What advice would you have? Or if you like look back, is there anything that you could have done differently to keep you from getting to that point where that one customer went away that you had to go switch all over to the new product? Definitely. It's, it's just good advice to diversify your customer base. Having a few really big customers just gives them incredible leverage over you. The good thing is that it did push you to push the product, right? Because you didn't have any other choice at that time. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thankfully, we had invested enough in the product and been working on that for enough years that we could weather it. At the time, you probably didn't think of it as diversification. But looking back, I guess it was just having that product on the side. It was definitely part of the plan and going low dollar relatively, right? Remember consulting contracts at the time were like half a million to a million dollars. Even a deal at 22,000 was relative chump change compared to the services work, but it meant that we could have a lot of those customers. And that be, landed up being a huge strength for the business because as it turned out, the companies we were competing with over time on the software product side had gone the opposite way. So they had pitched to Fortune 500s and they had million dollar contracts. They didn't have the customer diversity that we did. And you had a different types of income streams, which helped as well. I could see that, especially that'd be a hard hit to take. So what did you make those developers do? It seems like you weren't prepared to have them work on the product. Like what were they doing to the product? Because you said that you weren't going to lay them off, but it seems like all of a sudden to make seven people work on something when maybe a week earlier, you didn't have an idea that they would, I wouldn't know what to tell them what to work on. We never had a problem for product roadmap because we were talking to customers and getting people, to, you know, we started doing trade shows. So we started going to trade shows in 2007. And so we were had a little booth and we were standing in front of IT admins at these shows and they were telling us what they wanted the product to do. So we had a massive long roadmap. We knew all the features we had to build in order to get more and more of the, the market. As soon as I had another, you know, seven developers to work on things, I could just put them straight onto that roadmap, like start working on this big capability, this one, this one, this one. The challenge for them though, was that they had never worked on the product before. They were coming from customer projects, consulting work. They knew the platform and the technology, 
but they didn't know the specifics of how this software product worked. So there was going to be lag. It was going to take time for them to get up to speed and be more and more productive. So you're saying 2012, and then you had a product roadmap. You know what y'all want to do. And how much money you have in the bank? Do you have six months runway or so? Or more than that? 2012. I don't know what our balance sheet looked like at the time. I tried to keep it pretty safe. The, the fall off in consulting revenue, that was the scariest time in the whole company. Other than that, we probably always had probably about 200000 in the bank somewhere there. You're starting to develop these things that you wanted to. So sales just started going straight up or just take us along from 2012 to where we're at? Once we you know, lost the consulting revenue, it was everything focused on growing product revenue. And we started to see the uptick that we expected. And so I just started investing everything I could in growing product revenue. And then also I was able to invest all of my time. I was no longer split as much on the consulting work. I could be you know, heads down, just how do we make this product thing as big and the best that it can possibly be. And so we invested more in salespeople. There was lots and lots of hiring and more events. So we did more and more trade shows, put more into our marketing budget and just kept growing the business that way. And we were growing in the US and internationally. And we were probably growing year on year with product revenue at this point, like 50%, which was great. Any advice on hiring salespeople? There's lots of ways to do it. Depends on like what they're going to be selling and things like that. The way that we did it, we worked with a company that focused on college graduates you know, really junior salespeople with almost no experience, but we just looked for the, the right stuff. Did they have enthusiasm? Did they seem to be team players? And, and that worked well with our company culture. We've had this culture of like a team of consultants that go in to try to help people the whole time, very sort of more servant leadership. So I wasn't a top-down dictatorial boss. I was more a coach that worked with my employees. We had a very good team atmosphere. We tried to bring that to the sales team, kind of novel. A lot of sales teams aren't that way. They're more doggy dog kind of, kind of places. We brought in these generally younger folks, college graduates, and kind of groomed them from there. It proved to be successful. We could hire them at pretty low rates because they were just starting out in their careers. And then we could have a healthy portion of commission. So at a good base, we always had really good benefits for all employees. So they had a solid foundation and then they could build their salary with more and more commission by doing deals. How do you structure like a commission for some something like that in that industry? Because I have no clue how you would even know how to do that. We mostly just winged it. I mean, a lot of this was just figuring it out on the fly and experimenting with different things. And we took a lot of the practices that we'd seen success on in the development side, and we tried to bring them to the team. It's like one of the things that we did, I don't know that it was that successful, a little bit socialist, I guess. But what we did was they had a percentage that they would get paid out in commission. I think it was like... 4% of the deal or something like that. $10,000 deal, they would make $400 commission. But what we did was we moved the percentage based on the sales target of the team. So if the team hit their quota for that month, they might get like on target 4% commission. If they exceeded their target, then each person might get paid out of 4.5% or 5% or stuff like that. So you'd still only get paid out based on what you'd sold, but you would get paid out at the percentage achieved by the team's efforts. So it really brought a lot of camaraderie to the team. People would help each other out. If you were new and you had lots of questions, people would take the time to answer them and help you because they wanted you to hit your numbers so that they would get paid out at a higher percentage. And do you still do it that way today? 
No. <laughs> well, I've always wondered, because I've been curious, I understand what you're going for with that concept because my background's in real estate and using with commission percentage. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered like, yeah, how do you do it if you want to change it as well? Using a team concept, kind of like you're doing, I think it's smart because it always became like a doggy dog world. We were saying when usually just real estate, residential, commercial, whatever, or mortgage brokering, it's everyone's like, they're in the same company, but everyone's kind of behind your back trying to get the next deal and get your deal. So... And to be fair, when I say no, we don't do that anymore. We did do that up until the end of 2014. We took the company to 10 million in revenue using that approach. So it works. It gives you a very nice place to work. Everyone's very team oriented and looking out for each other. We took investment in 2015 and got new management in and they're scaling the business from 10 million up and they're using tried and tested techniques, which are not stuff like that, but they're able to get faster growth, but it does affect the culture. Now the culture is not exactly the same as it was back then. Well, tell us the difference. The difference in culture? Yeah, just tell us what you learned from going from this commission, if it's just because of the commission structure or what. Again, this is one thing that I've always been curious about. Also, when you end up changing that system and the people are expecting the old system and then they're pissed off that you have a new system. Yeah, for sure. I think it's all about growth. Like how quickly do you want to grow? And then keeping that growth as the numbers get bigger, keeping 50% growth, that's fine when you're at 2 million or 3 million. When you're at 10 million, and you got to do 50% growth, five extra million on top of the 10 you got to get already in the next year. That's a lot, right? The techniques that new management's amazing there. I mean, they've done phenomenal since they've come in. I took the equity investment specifically with the idea of no longer being CEO. So within three months, I stepped down. They, they didn't even want me to. They're like, are you sure you want to do this? I'm like, hey, this was the plan the whole time. I didn't want to do the scaling of the company. That was something that didn't really appeal to me a whole lot. It's a lot more HR, it's just a numbers game. But they, man, do we have the right people? They come in, they bring in, they use their connections a lot. So they started hiring in people that are known entities, people they've worked with before. They're setting quotas, they're splitting territories. It's very by the numbers, sales and marketing. What it's done to the culture is I think it's given people more opportunities for mentorship because now they can work with people who have a lot more experience in the field. So I think that's kind of nice instead of trying to figure it out as we go and kumbaya kind of like, hey, we'll make this work. Now they can look at someone that's got 25 years enterprise sales experience and have that person be you know, sales team lead and learn from them, get coaching on their calls, stuff like that. So there's a lot more opportunities for growth, but I think there's less of that. I want to help everyone around me. I think people are focused a little bit more on their own performance now. And 2015 is when you sold part of the company? Yeah, June of 2015. We'd done 10 million in revenue in 2014. We were on track to do about 12 and a half. I wasn't meeting my goal. I was only doing about 25% growth and I wanted to be doing 50% growth. We did the deal in June. We interviewed new CEO, brought in Jim Legg, who's our CEO now in July. And I handed over to him as full CEO in October. I was like, just go for it, man. You've got this. You've got all the skills. I'm just standing in your way. And I moved over to the tech side, became CTO and focused on the tech side of the business. And he did it. He grew the company to 15 million, even starting halfway through the year with like a bit of a handicap. <laughs> So was there a realization when you went to sell? In what respect? Just on your own respect that you're like, hey, if I can't grow it to 15 million or maybe I need help or were you just getting tired of working in the company? Yeah, I think I was pretty burned out. I think I'd just been doing the same thing for a long time. And I also recognized that the problem wasn't the product or any, you know, the product's great. People like it, they buy it. The problem was a scaling problem. And that's not the same as starting a business there, you know, 
you often hear this said where you have different employees for different phases of the business and you also have different leaders for different phases of the business. I just recognized I wasn't it wasn't what I wanted to do. I would far sooner get someone else in that enjoyed that part and, you know, support them in doing it. And what percentage of the business did you sell? I sold two thirds. Can you tell us how much you sold it for? I can't reveal any numbers, but it was sizable. At that time, did you think you're going to sell that much? I think a lot of owners, even if they go to sell, it's usually like under 50%. They still want to have that ego or like hold on to it. Yeah. I mean, I still hold significant stock in the company. I'm still actively involved in the board. I still have a good say in the business and, and I really like the people that are running it now and involved in the business. The logic for me in selling more than 50% really came down to dilution through acquisitions. Since I took the investment, we've made two acquisitions. So we've bought two other companies since then. The problem is if you're trying to sell a company to get some liquidity, make some money, get some cash off the table. And then if there's going to be acquisitions, you're going to have to put money back in to keep your percentage. The idea of, of holding more than 50%, I would quickly get diluted. It didn't make much sense to me to hold on to that. And if I was choosing the right people, and I spent a long time looking at different investment companies and picking the right one that brought, you know, all this, I didn't just need someone with a checkbook. I needed someone who was going to help me bring the right leadership in and help grow and scale the business. Are you just able to Google that? How did you find those people? I was getting approached all the time. I I mean, you still do in the industry. I get approached by equity people all the time. I was approached by this firm. One of the guys, I'm actually pretty good friends with him now. I didn't know him from a bar soap at the time, but he sent me an email and it was compelling. He talked about the industry. He talked about what they'd done, some of the other companies they'd worked with and how they could help. He really knew the space. And so that got him a conversation on the phone and things sort of grew from there. Let's just talk about where you're at today and like how much time you spend in the company. And I guess you said you're a mentor now as well. Yeah. So I've been working with different startups. I have a website. It's called Good Rain Shade goodrainshade.com, which is just a blog for similar advice to what we talked about today, just lessons learned over the years. And what I've been doing is working with a couple of different incubators and then also working with companies that I've just come across through connections over the years. My mentoring, I don't charge anything for it. It's just chat to companies. And then if there's a good fit, I can get involved and sit on their board or make an investment, that kind of thing. Looking back, it's 2015 to 2017. Did you just stop working as much or what's your personal involvement with your company today? Today, what basically what I did was I phased out my involvement over time. So I moved out of sales and marketing, which was my main focus in 2014 and early 2015. And I moved into the tech side. So I, I worked with R&D and product management. But the reality is those guys, those folks there have got that. They've been doing it for years without my help. So I sort of slowly phased myself out of that area as well. These days, I'm involved at the board level and I maintain connections with people I know within the company and help out occasionally with historical things or tax questions and bookkeeping and stuff like that, but all very much a, a minor role these days. Did you have any issues trying to like figure out what you're going to do next after you phased out of that company? You've been putting so much time, it seems like every year or every week into it, and then you're slowly phasing yourself out. Did you know what you wanted to do? Not really. I tried a couple of different things, mostly hobbies. And I came to the realization uh, with a friend's help, he talked to me about it. And I just realized I was burnt out. I was just burnt out of doing that stuff. But taking a break for a little while and now coming back to the startup mentoring, I think I needed that rest from entrepreneurship for a while to kind of restart my engines, I guess. And now I'm coming back to it and going, well, I'm, I'm happy to be involved, but I want to talk more on the mentoring and advice side rather than working directly in a startup. What did you do to get over the burnout? I always enjoyed travel. I've done a lot of travel 
and just relaxing, pursuing hobbies, that kind of thing. Just not doing what I was doing before, just taking a break. Any suggestions on where to travel? What's been your favorite? Favorite places so far, I have a sweet spot for Hawaii. I've been to several of the islands there. It's a really great place. My fiance, her family's from the Philippines. We did a trip there last year that was really amazing. Great place to visit. I took up scuba diving a few years ago. So I've been doing some scuba in different places. Uh, Grand Cayman is another amazing place to go for scuba. And if you're looking back, just any lessons that you have for the entrepreneurs, main hurdles that you see, you bring up sales before with the mentors. Is there anything else with all the lessons that you've learned? Definitely. A big one I didn't mention, but you can probably figure it out from the narrative was just coming up with your niche. Like what is your product niche? And, and even within that, like what makes your product unique to all the other competitors that are out there? And what it landed up being for us is because of our humble beginnings in consulting, the fact that we went after a broad base of customers with a low dollar price, and the fact that we didn't have any dedicated tech support, or we certainly didn't have like a lot of enterprise software sales, they'll do professional services where a, like a person goes on site to help with the implementation. We had none of that. And if you call tech support in the early days, my cell phone would ring. We had a totally different approach to the market. And what that meant was it meant that we had to build a product that didn't need much help to like get it installed and working. It meant that we had to focus on making it as easy as possible. And that differentiation has helped us enormously in the market because now when we compete, we still sell for a few thousand dollars on our low-end version of our product, but we also sell million-dollar deals on the high-end in the enterprise. But our competitors that we're going up against, they've typically always had that heavy hand-holding to the way the product's delivered and installed and everything else. But because of our beginnings, we've had to be... you know simple, friendly, and easy kind of approach. And that becomes a big differentiator. Now, when the customer looks at the two products, one is just so much easier to use than the other one. So I think that's important to do. Too many people either want to find a market that there is no competitors in, which is really scary for lots of reasons, or they want to go into a market where there are competitors, but they don't have a real edge. And your edge will just making it easier over time? Yeah, just you know, bright and cheerful, just really easy to get installed. It doesn't need any you know, hands-on help. You don't have to spend two weeks doing it. And then the learning curve is the same with using the product. So you don't have to look up the manual. You don't have to call tech support. You just kind of figure out how it works. Hey, this sort of makes sense. Just a lot of obsessive detail to the usability of the tool just pays off enormously. And the nice thing about that differentiator too, and obviously your differentiator can be anything, but you want your differentiator to be something that's hard to duplicate. Usability is very tricky, right? It's very fungible. How do you define good usability versus poor usability? It's the sliding scale. It's difficult to enumerate. You're just talking about like ease of use versus making it difficult. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I guess it's like um, QuickBooks versus the old QuickBooks that everyone used and how difficult that was versus I think a lot of new accounting software came online because it was just way overcomplicated. Yeah, exactly. If it's simpler to use, then it's quicker time to value, right, is the idea too. If I don't have to spend two weeks installing your product, I don't have to spend so much time learning how something works, then I'm going to get the value, what the problem I was trying to solve. I'm going to get that in two hours of using your product versus maybe getting some value in three or four weeks down the line. And when you're making a 50 or or $100,000 purchase, that's a big deal. What do you see for your future personally? Uh, so far, I really enjoy the mentoring. It's been great. I get to talk to lots of different companies. I get to have a good pulse on the industry as to what people are doing. 
I've focused a little bit on cybersecurity, but also a lot on other software startups. Yeah, it's been really cool. I just went out to uh, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show. I was there in January and there was uh, the Sands Expo Hall there had all startups around consumer electronics and cool things they're doing with wearables and it's exciting. You often hear this, you know, young entrepreneurs lamenting that everything's been done before or they missed their time or something and nonsense. You know, there's so much innovation and so much cool stuff. There's so many more things that are going to be happening. And like how many hours per week are you doing that? Not a lot at this point, probably like 10 hours a week. I guess that, where do you spend your other time? Mostly pursuing hobbies and traveling. Does it sound like a bad life? It's, it's pretty great so far. <laughs> we appreciate you mentoring young entrepreneurs because that's why we put this podcast together and you mentoring us as my voice is about to go. But if somebody wanted to say thank you for doing the interview and reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Uh, if you come over to the website I have set up for the mentoring, it's just goodrainshade.com. And there's a contact form there and I'm happy to do you know a mentoring session with someone. If the business makes sense and I think I can help, I'm happy to chat to them and give them some advice. Again, no cost for any of that. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Austin. If you're looking for other tech-based interviews, then consider episode 66 with Sid Bala, where he talks about building a software company. Episode 70 with Neil Thander, where he talks about growing a business that ranks 34 different supplement categories. Or episode 71 with Jordan Gao, where he talks about cart abandonment, e-commerce, and click funnels. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3469. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode, so don't be scared to get creative. As always, thanks for tuning in and sharing the podcast with your friends, family, and loved ones.